Greg Lindsay, you're listening to a special episode of Unfrozen devoted to the master planner of the city of London, Peter Rees. I'm about to read to you my contribution to this special episode, uh, an essay I wrote in 2017 titled The Engine Room. It was based on my walking tour of the square mile with Peter Rees uh, a year after his retirement in, uh, in 2015. Uh, my piece explores uh, the whole notion of engineering serendipity, which is a subject I've been fascinated in. I wanted to walk with Peter and discuss how cities can be machines for processing information. And the square mile is perhaps the foremost example of that. So that's the sort of underwriting theme. With that, let's get into it. So this is The Engine Room. The Heron is blandly handsome as London skyscrapers go, compared to the nearby and similarly whimsically named gherkin, walkie-talkie, or cheese grater towers. But the three-year-old luxury building is exceptional in two respects. For one thing, it's the first housing block since the 1970s to be located in the city, the compact, ancient financial center of London, also known as the Square Mile. For another, its few full-time residents include Peter Wynne Rees, who personally approved its construction, along, as it happens, with the gherkin, walkie-talkie, and cheese grater. As the longtime chief planner for the City of London Corporation, Rees is arguably the person most responsible for the stunning recent transformation of London's historic core into one of the fastest growing centers of commercial development on the planet. After a remarkably long tenure, nearly 30 years, Rees retired in 2014, but is still fiercely protective of what he calls the engine room, the economic hub of Greater London, the United Kingdom, and perhaps the world. For now. He's been outspokenly critical of luxury apartments marketed to absentee owners who wire the funds from offshore accounts, notoriously describing such projects as safety deposit boxes in the sky. But on a recent tour of the district, I discover he's surprisingly skeptical of housing in general, given that most homes are empty during the day and dark at night. The city has neither the time nor the room for that. It's a waste of land, which is in short supply here, Rees tells me during our walk. Cities can't afford that degree of underuse. He sees the city, above all, as a commercial reactor fueled by chance encounters and traded snippets of information, what he calls the gossip. Though accelerated by the financial deregulation in the 1980s, this heritage reaches back several centuries, starting with the founding of the Royal Exchange in 1571, spilling over into the Restoration Era pubs and coffee houses lining nearby Change Alley and continuing to this day in the pocket parks and arcades he and his staff planned or protected. People make places, places make gossip, gossip makes people money, he explains, and the city is especially well designed to allow that to happen. Tall, lantern-jawed, and incisively critical, Rees is an intimidating yet solicitous guy to, as he puts it, probably the only point on the planet that has a 2,000-year continuous trading history, he says, ever since, quote, a couple of boatloads of drunken and sex-starved Romans ran aground in the Thames, end quote. Strolling from the Heron, through the Barbican to the Museum of London, we pass guild halls, remnants of Roman walls, and a host of Christopher Wren-designed churches, all of which are off-limits to development. To make space for the museum, he notes, we had to find a site that didn't exist by building it over a roadway. In 1986, barely a year after Rees had arrived in his post as the corporation's youngest officer in its history, the city experienced the Big Bang, the deregulation of the London Stock Exchange and of British banking in general. 
The subsequent explosion in trading literally sent him and his staff back to their drawing boards, polling a pair of property consultants on how much floor space the city would need over the next decade. One determined 20 million square feet, and the other said, well, it's too late. You won't be able to meet the demand in time. So none, Rees recalled. Being good planners, we averaged our data, 20 million or nothing, okay, 10 million, and we managed to create that over a decade. The city has grown by that much every decade since. Doing so has required rebuilding 80% of the square miles gross leasable area, he estimates. A figure even more impressive in light of more than 700 heritage buildings designated landmarks in American terms that cannot be demolished, and the strict limitations on development established by more than a dozen protected viewsheds of St. Paul's Cathedral. With so many variables in play, Rees abolished all hard and fast rules for approvals, such as the conventional and standardized floor area ratios used in New York and other U.S. cities. Once they discovered atriums and building over roadways, it was completely shot, he says, and resolved to judge each building individually on its merits. Although this gave him unprecedented authority by American standards, Rees denies being much of a planner at all. Planning doesn't give you a kit of tools to do things in this country the way it does in the rest of the world, he insists. We can't have master plans. We simply have a set of rules for things you can't do. Those rules are intended to limit real estate developers from building out of context relative to the city's history and topography, which on his watch generally meant gradually hammering plans into shape until they fit his principles rather than rejecting them outright at the start. I always said to developers, you should come to see me at the back of the envelope stage, he says. Please make sure the architect doesn't draw on the envelope first. One new change is a case in point. The gray origami plain shopping mall opposite St. Paul's met with Rees' approval after the architect Jean Nouvel strode into his office bearing a cardboard box rather than blueprints. Reaching inside, he told Rees, I have to fly under the radar of St. Paul's, so I appreciate my building must be invisible, and produced a model of a B-2 stealth bomber. It's one of the few buildings where the architect chose the nickname, Rees recalls. Standing on its rooftop terrace, he points to the adjacent bar and notes with relish that when he began his tenure, the city's pubs closed not long after the last suburban commuters had fled. Today, a new generation of bars and clubs remain open until early morning on the weekends, and for many young bankers, the line between business hours and after hours has been erased. They get the job to pay for the party, not the other way around, Rees observes. His exuberant embrace of nightlife as a development principle has been acidly described by the architecture critic Rowan Moore as, quote, erotoeconomics, unquote. Rees' critics argue he's projected his own preferences as an unapologetically gay bachelor onto the city, to the point where he once remarked that families make cities in general dull. But in his defense, merchant banking arose from the city's pubs and coffee houses, where the gossip was at its thickest. He reiterates this point while we stop for cappuccinos in the atrium of the Royal Exchange, the place where people come to have their informal meetings over a coffee. I often say if you were a lip reader, you could probably make a fortune walking through this place, he says. One of the things that gave me the greatest pleasure over the years was increasing pedestrian permeability in the city and increasing the amount of urban space, he told me. This wasn't just a personal preference, it was also good business. Towers are excellent for stacking tens of thousands of bankers and insurers in a confined space, but they are a terrible means of collecting new information. In the American dream, he says, perhaps thinking of Mad Men era Midtown Manhattan, or perhaps post-pandemic uh, uh, business leaders trying to get them back, we would be locked in the office from at least nine until five. Of course, that's a very inefficient way to do things, because when you're trapped in your office, the only gossip you hear is the gossip of your friends, he explains. But you already know that. What you want is the gossip that you don't know you want. It's the chance encounters, the eavesdropping, and overhearing things in the street, in the alleyway. To demonstrate, we cross the street and wind our way through Ball Court and St. Michael's Alley, where city suits stand outside sipping lunchtime pints at the Jamaica Winehouse and the Georgian Vulture. 
The former claims to be London's first coffee house, frequented by Samuel Pepys, the original modern mobile worker, while the latter is virtually unchanged since its appearance in Charles Dickens' The Pickwick Papers. There's an actual clubhouse in the center of the city where businessmen of all shades gather and gossip to this day, Rees point says, pointing at the Georgian vulture. You can just peek into the windows. Emerging from the rabbit's warren, we head in the direction of 22 Fenchurch Street, better known as the Walkie Talkie. Designed by the American architect Raphael Vignoli and winner of the 2015 Carbuncle Cup for the ugliest building in the UK completed that year, the tower is famously bigger at the top than at the bottom, which many believe is a ploy to cheat its neighbors of their sunlight and air rights. This is an illusion, Rees insists. I keep telling people it's not larger at the top than it is at the bottom, it's smaller at the bottom than it is at the top. He and his fellow planners had forced Vignoli to taper the building at the base as well as lopped more than 100 feet off its proposed height. The building's other great failing, that it focused the sun rays to a point that it could melt cars, wasn't the architect's fault but the value engineers who had eliminated Vignoli's planned screens. It's always worth remembering every building is a prototype, says Rees. You only get one go at a building. You can't build a full-size model first. The remainder of our tour amounts to the city's greatest hits compilation, the Gherkin, the Cheese Grater, and Richard Rogers' Inside Out Lloyd's Building, which I stutteringly compare to grain silos or the Space Shuttle's launch pad gantry. It's a laundry for money, Rees tartly replies. Rather than take a victory lap, he'd rather focus on their flaws. Swiss Rees Gherkin, the Squares Miles architectural Big Bang designed by Lord Norman Foster, dominates and thus dulls the plaza around it. The Cheese Grater's half-hearted public space at its base is awkward at best, and Lloyd's floats freely from the street, redeemed at ground level only by the adjacent bustle of Leadenhall Market. In the wake of the Gherkin's rapturous reception, Rees received inquiries from around the world asking how one plans an icon. An icon is a third-rate Russian painting with very little artistic merit, he reminds me, which acquires religious significance because worshippers attribute it with mystical powers. It's the public, not the artist. So you cannot ask an artist or an architect to design you an iconic building. If you do, you'll get a wacky building, which is not the same thing at all. We're at the end of our tour in the churchyard of St. Boltoff's, wedged between the towers of Bishopsgate and Liverpool Station. Rees is off to teach a class at the Bartlett, University College London's architecture school, which he joined following his retirement in 2014. He has no successor. The City of London Corporation eliminated his position. The power of planning is waning, he told me. Central governments see it as an impediment on development. Mindful of how Lower Manhattan transformed into a residential district following 9-11, I ask whether he can ever imagine more towers like the Herons sprouting across the city, especially given the profit margins. No, I think the city does need its special character, he says. I think it works better as a business district because it's focused. It knows what it's about. It's an engine room. It's only one square mile. You can have all the rest of London to live in. People can even live close enough to walk to work in the city or cycle. But you need an identifiable business district. You need the street where they only sell bananas. And this is the street where they only sell bananas. Make me think you're straight down the line How you doing me is time
The City and Color Commentary Peter Wynne Rees has been the chief planner for the City of London for 28 years. If one has the privilege of joining him for a few brief hours, his experience comes rolling out in a regalia of inside stories, one-liners, and minutiae that solidify the visitor's understanding of the richness of the square mile and the challenges that come with guiding new construction in a lucrative yet charming place. On a blustery June morning, Rees took his charges through several hundred years of London history, through alleys and past the George and Vulture pub, frequented by Dickens, then through the remnants of Roman gladiatorial amphitheaters and past the latest parade of nicknamed skyscrapers. The overriding theme throughout was the critical role that the coordinated chaos of the streets plays in a city's vitality, underscoring why new projects must succeed at street level in order to maintain and reinforce that vitality. Reeds defined the prime product of the city, the possibility of chance occurrences and shared gossip that could lead to vital business insights, which under his guidance is to remain inviolate regardless of how tall or dense development becomes. The city, being right in the heart of London, has the opportunity to be both the party and the workplace, he said. We are both the compost and the beehive here, and the honey is the gossip, the result of the bees rubbing up against things accidentally. Some places, such as the 1844 Royal Exchange, retain the role of gossip gathering even as their normal function has changed. No longer the center of commodities trading in the kingdom, the Royal Exchange is now an upscale shopping mall, but it's still where people go to talk business. As an upmarket shopping center, coffee bar, and restaurant, Royal Exchange still has all the things you would want to maintain gossip, Reese says. A lot of people come here for breakout meetings, which means far enough away from the office that the boss can't hear. In Reese's telling, even nominally excellent pieces of architecture can fail if they do not support this most critical stock in trade. Buildings are almost irrelevant. People will find a place to work if they want to be in a place badly enough, Reese says. If there are places to gossip and bump into each other, then you will find an office nearby to do your business. He noted the impending move of media outlets such as Bloomberg, an advertising firm Saatchi & Saatchi, into the city as examples of gossip's magnetism. Even though Richard Rogers' Lloyd's of London building is now grade at one listed, and justifiably so, Rees finds fault with the way the building floats in space above the ground and creates awkward spaces around itself, he said. This building really broke the mold, and I think it's a wonderful piece of architecture, Rees said. But as a planner, I have problems with it. It doesn't meet the ground. You have these horrible spaces underneath the building. I do like a building that looks at its site and somehow talks to the place where it is built. Yet, he pointed out, this being the city, an urbanistically hostile grade one listed building from the 20th century does not crush the vitality so long as it is directly adjoined by a grade two listed public market from the 19th century, Leadenhall Market, where conviviality can carry on. Reese's operating theory is that monocultures and cities, most relevantly in business and design, are as destructive to an ecosystem's vitality as they are in nature and agriculture. The planner's antipathy toward the banking industry, or at least the idea that the city was in recent decades becoming a monoculture thereof, was on raw display during the tour. Rees chronicled his experience with Barclays Bank, which built a 19-story, postmodern, barrel-vaulted complex just yards from St. Michael's Church. Rees felt the project was overscaled for the site. 
Barclays had threatened to leave the city for Canary Wharf if it did not get its way, so Rees's recommendation against project approval was overruled by the councillors in office at the time. Barclays moved into its building in 1992 and slowly decamped for Canary Wharf anyway, department by department, over the next few decades. So, we got the building, and we haven't got Barclays Bank, Rees said. I am pleased that we haven't got Barclays Bank, but I am not pleased that we do have the building. If Barclays got its heaviest criticism, Rees's highest praise was reserved for a strikingly contemporary, if not particularly tall, office building, Grimshaw's 25 Gresham Street, also owned by Lloyd's Banking Group, which sits back from the street behind a medieval churchyard. The trees of the yard were retained and appeared to be growing up into the building, which has two cantilevered leaves on either side of an atrium. Though its curving profile looks nothing like the stone livery halls that dominate the area, it does look as if it belongs there, which is exactly the point. Now that is a building in its context, Rees said. That is a building that understands its site. That is what I'm trying to achieve. I am not trying to tell an architect what material to use or what style to work in. I am saying, make this building work with its site, in your way. And when that happens, it's magic. That's what gives me pleasure. Rees maintained that he does not have a favorite building, and whether he likes a building as a planner is beside the point. The question that must be resolved is, does the building work from the perspective of urbanity? In good planning, skepticism pays off. Rees is skeptical that a city can rise like a phoenix, instantaneously, without a solid foundation of commercial culture and civic life beneath. Building a menagerie of towers does not a city make, no matter how exciting the architecture is, Rees said. He likened good architecture to the icing on the cake, but first, you must have the cake. Wending through the city for three hours confirms this argument, though it also confirms the uniqueness of the district. If you are going to have a vibrant place, why not also have good architecture to bolt on as well, Rees said. The fact that we now have tourists who come to London to photograph modern office towers tells you we have been doing something right for the past 25 years. It's been just about that long since the first two towers broke ground at Canary Wharf, an Americanized district of broad avenues and megablocks, about as different a trading environment from the original city as can be, and yet, in its mere adolescence, it could not be called placeless. To walk through Canary Wharf is an object lesson in the kind of placemaking that can stem from the exploitation of an increasing rarity and developer's delight, a 100-acre or 40-hectare blank space in a major metropolitan area. Before the city of London's cluster of towers emerged at the beginning of the last decade, Canary Wharf was where large businesses, feeling hemmed in and unwelcome in the square mile, Barclays, Citigroup, HSBC, JP Morgan, Reuters, went to secure the largest possible floor plates in the region, up to 80,000 square feet. When they arrived, they found a unique build-to-suit developer contractor manager in Canary Wharf Group PLC. In the late 1980s, the earliest pioneers did not find much else, although a critical link in the Docklands Light Railway had wisely been extended into the abandoned wharves and jetties on the Thames's north bank. The cluster of towers that now houses more than 15 million square feet of office space, 700,000 square feet of retail, and 100,000 workers did not spring up all at once, but gradually grew outward from the center point. The point is where the perfunctory DLR station was adjoined by Caesar Pelly's One Canada Square, a 50-story Class A office building with a pyramidal crown, nearly indistinguishable from his World Financial Center in New York, 
intended as a bulwark against too-big-to-fail defections from lower Manhattan. At the time, Britain's financial services were deregulating in the Big Bang, and this was London's bid to capture global financial institutions before they looked elsewhere. Less a stake in the ground than a beefy Axis Mundi, the 1.5 million square foot One Canada Square epitomized the confidence its developers were intending to project. It was a big risk that paid off immensely. The building remains the tallest in the development, and new buildings stepped down away from it in succession, providing a sense of order and composition that its city compatriots have a much harder time achieving as they swerve out of the way of heritage view corridors on their irregular plots. Canary Wharf Group's aim to please one-stop-shop approach, combined with its laser focus on optimizing transit connections, largely accounts for the development's success, said Tony Jordan, Vice President of Development for Canary Wharf Group. When we first started, there were about 800,000 working people within one hour's commute of Canary Wharf, Jordan said. With the improvements that have taken place in public transportation over the last 25 years, that figure is now 2.5 million. The developers have a history of tweaking planned urban infrastructure to their own purposes, yet have provided many public benefits in the process. They built a canopy over the DLR platforms that reads like a postmodern version of the many Victorian train sheds of central London, which encourages travelers to dwell a bit longer in the attached subterranean mall, Cabot Place. When London Underground built the Canary Wharf Jubilee Line Station in 1999, Canary Wharf Group worked with architect Foster and Partners to add an additional three entrances to accommodate an expected 33,000 people per hour at peak times. And when Crossrail, the East-West Express train service set to commence in 2018, now sometime in 2022, reaches Canary Wharf, access for an additional 36,000 people per hour will be through an elaborate multi-level station submerged in a canal and the soil beneath. Cunningly, Every transfer passenger between these modes will also be a Canary Wharf visitor and potential shopper. The developers invested money and design input into the Crossrail station so as to limit the impact of construction works on occupiers, but also to force channel transferees through acres of underground retail. There was talk at one time of driving a very deep tunnel from Crossrail to the Jubilee Line platform. We did not encourage that idea, Jordan said. We'd much prefer passengers to come through our retail. Everything on site is optimized to provide the highest level of service, comfort, and neighborhood amenities for the population who come here each day, Jordan said. The redundant utilities substations and cabling, stable of 32 lifts capable of speeds of 4 meters per second, and core design and excess of fire code that characterize One Canada Square have set a high bar. Canary Wharf Group has seen fit to replicate or better these features in each new building on the estate, said Paul Muti. Director of Building Services at One Canada Square. A brisk walk around the estate's shopping malls and public squares offered an opportunity for Geraldine Ryan, corporate liaison manager for Canary Wharf Group, to note the public art, jazz clubs, and 30 acres of parkland, in seeming rebuttal to those who would mistake the place for a mere office park or shopping center. The investment in the public realm has proven convincing. Between 20,000 and 30,000 people now live within a 10-minute walk of One Canada Square, and I'm sure the number is greater than that now in 2022. More mixed-use development is planned on the eastern fringes of the complex at Wood Wharf, where at least six more buildings are envisioned. In the meantime, Wood Wharf is a pop-up park. A room-sized 3D model showed many future buildings in clear perspex. Unfortunately, photography was not allowed. While the city now epitomizes the tensions between height and heritage, 
Canary Wharf is now a place that has its own heritage to contend with. It's beginning to take on the auspices of a city in its own right, though one psychologically still more at a remove from the city than the two-mile, 15-minute train ride from the Bank of England would imply. Favorite building. 